Uh, So look forward to looking at Scripture with you today. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. The last time we spoke on Titus, we were outside uh, enjoying the geese and the warm weather. Uh, Today, uh, we're going to be looking at Titus chapter 2, and I want to thank those of you who have been praying for... uh, for what I'll be speaking on today, I have asked the members, asked uh, those on Wednesday night uh, in my class uh, to pray for us, asked the Deacon Fellowship to pray for me uh, as we go through this text of Scripture, because uh, this text, I think, is, as Pastor James says, uh, cr- it cuts cross-culture. Before I get into the sermon, let me just say it's my heart to communicate to you the Scripture clearly. Uh, that was my commitment years ago. When I surrender to ministry, I I try to renew that uh, consistently uh, to communicate what the Word of God says. And I hope today I can do that uh, not only clearly but lovingly. I trust that you will will hear uh, from my voice and from my heart uh, nothing that would sound uh, argumentative or chauvinistic, uh, but that you would hear the scriptures, uh, and that you would hear the tenderness uh, that this comes from from my heart to you uh, as we walk through these things together. So in Titus chapter 2, Paul uh, gives instructions about what Titus is to set in order on the island of Crete. Remember, there were 20 towns on the island, and Paul wants them to set up, uh, Paul wants Titus to set up elders on all of those, in all of those cities. And the book of Titus is filled with instructions to help him as he ministers to new believers in new churches being formed on the island of Crete. His instructions in chapter 2 have to do with teaching. I think I can show you that right in your your Bible. If you look at Titus 2 and verse 1, it says, But as for you, teach. And then if you look at verse 15, the very last verse of this chapter The ESV translates it, declare these things, it could be teach these things. Okay, so Paul uses the same word for speech or teaching at the beginning and the end of the chapter to frame the whole thing. So one of the things that Titus is to do to set in order things among believers on the island of Crete is he is supposed to be teaching certain things. He teaches believers in these churches on Crete. Now his teaching... Uh, topic is in this chapter is behavior in the home. In Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he'll address how older men, older women, younger men, younger women uh, are to behave in the home and in the church. Now, I'm not quite sure how this material would have hit a first century Greco Roman audience. Uh, There's a scholar who's written uh, much on the subject. His name is Bruce Winter. And if he's correct, uh, even in Paul's own day, these words would have been counterculture. Bruce Winter talks about an ancient sexual revolution that was going on in the Roman Empire where there was the establishment of the new Roman woman. It's in a book called Roman Widows, Roman Wives, if you're interested. Well, I'll leave that for him. What, what I will say today, though, is I am confident, I'm quite sure, how controversial this basic Bible instruction would be for us 
today or is for us today. It cuts across the grain of our culture and society. And unfortunately, believers are left where they must decide what will be their authority. Will it be everything we know and see in the world around us? Or will it be the Bible? I want to just take a few moments to show you how greatly we are impacted by this. Now, I know that you likely are aware of this, but there's much controversy in our own culture and world today concerning things like gender and roles in marriage or in the church. You remember the recent question that was posed by a politician to a Supreme Court nominee? She asked, what is a woman? And a simple question, perhaps you think deserves a simple answer, but the response was nebulous. We live in a culture that struggles to define manhood, womanhood, and gender. And then warns us about being guilty of misgendering someone by simply uh, considering features of his or her anatomy. I want to give you three simple demonstrations of the confusion in our world and culture today regarding things like the identity of a woman. The first one comes from Webster's Dictionary, right? That's where we all go, right, if we need a definition of something. Uh, So here's uh, the current uh, definition on Webster's Dictionary of a female. A female is a of or relating to or being the sex that typically has the capacity to bear young and produce eggs. Okay, It goes uh, beyond just uh, women, uh, human beings, right, female, but... Okay, and, and I think we can understand that and re- relate to that, but uh, recently uh, added in June of 2022 was letter B, or having a gender identity uh, that is opposite of a male. Okay, there's confusion there, right? We understand letter A as being more of a historic understanding of the idea of what a woman is. Letter B is something that's new in our culture. Um, Then, you know, the other place you're not supposed to go if you're writing a research paper for all our students from Regent or uh, Virginia Beach Theological Seminary is Wikipedia, okay? But it's, you know, layman definition or term. A woman is an adult female human. Prior to adulthood, a female human is referred to as a girl, a female child, or adolescent. Typically, women inherit a pair of X chromosomes from their parents and are capable of pregnancy and giving birth from puberty until menopause. Trans women have a gender identity that does not align with their male sex assignment at birth, while intersex women may have sex characteristics that do not fit typical notions of female biology. This is uh, what Wikipedia says is a definition of women. Um, And then finally... An example here from uh, a recent article written by Time Ma- or on, uh, in Time Magazine. The title of the article, if you want it, is What Does It Mean to Be a Woman? And the subtitle is It's Complicated. Written by a woman by the name of Susan Stryker. She is a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Yale University. I'll spare you much of the article, but the conclusion reads like this. Why can't womanhood jettison 
its biocentrism and expand its political horizons and include all people's experiences. Very last words of the article are this. After all, it's we the living who say collectively what woman means. Hopefully in ways that center the voices and experience experiences of all those who live as women uh, across all our other differences. All right, so here we learn what culture says or what culture values. For them, the final authority is the experience of people. And what we, the living, say regarding these things. In essence, you go from having one God with final authority to define morality and immorality, and you move to having eight billion gods who will define morality according to their own relative standards and values. And so our culture is descending into more and more confusion. Things that used to be abnormal, morally, are now promoted as normal. And things that used to be normal are seen as being uh, intolerant and unloving. And to me, it's frightening to consider what the next 20 or 30 years might do in a culture that continues to descend like that. Confused ideas regarding these things are not just impacting the culture. They're also impacting the church in ways that I think are bringing irreparable damage and moral confusion to believers. So churches are ordaining practicing homosexuals as bishops or preachers in many mainline denominations today. They're also ordaining women who are preaching and teaching men in clear contradiction to what the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, for instance, says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So in some cases, we have very gifted women who get the gospel right, but who aren't complying with the voice of Scripture regarding roles in the church. But men and women at Colonial, at least to the membership here, I would say, our final authority is not culture. It's not what the living say or what mainline churches do or promote. Our authority is the living God and the living word of God. That's the voice that we need to hear from today. And so today we're going to begin a two-week series Uh, over the first 10 verses of Titus, to consider basic Bible instruction for the home and the church. And we'll ask God to produce Christ-likeness in us, lives that do not conform to the standard in the United States, but who conform to Christ. If if Paul were saying this to Titus, uh, which he does here, he lives that conform not to Crete, but to Christ. And uh, that will be our call together as well. Now, most of the content of Titus 2 involves Paul answering two questions about teaching. First, Paul gives Titus instructions that that, uh, the instructions that he should give in verses 1 through 10 about how believers should live. That's, That's the big question 
uh, this answer in verses 1 through 10. How should believers live? And then the way I take verses 11 through 14 is answering a second question. How can they behave? So first question, how should believers behave? Second question, how can they behave? Okay. And uh, so we start by looking at how Paul expects believers to behave in verses 1 through 10. And I want to read through the whole chapter with you. And so if you're physically able to, out of respect for the authority of God's word, I'd ask you to stand as I read this. I'll read through the chapter and then we'll consider what God's word has to say. Titus 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything there to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You may have a seat. So today we're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through uh, 5. 1 through 5. Paul starts this practical section uh, by giving instructions for how Titus himself is to teach in verse 1. Again, look at verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Here, uh, Paul starts with the minister Titus. He has responsibilities, we'll see it both here and later on, we'll see it next week. He's got responsibility to teach in certain ways and to live in certain ways as a pattern of good works. But he starts here, but as for you, which reminds us that he's, he's uh, contradicting or comparing, or uh, the right word is contrasting, Titus with someone. If you remember at the end of chapter 1, uh, we learned about the opponents of Titus on the island. They are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. They were upsetting whole families. They were teaching commands that turned people away from the truth of God. They're professing to know God, but were denying him by their works. They were, Paul concludes this way, 
they were detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Again, as we finished that text, I couldn't help but think, Paul, would you just tell us what you really think about them? As opposed to those opponents who are subverting the truth and teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach, Titus must teach something else. He must teach what, as the text says, accords with sound doctrine. The word teach means to speak, say, or talk. And this is not your normal word for teach. It can refer to his public teaching ministry, but I think it's even broader than that. It's a word that could be translated speaking. This is about all of Titus's speaking or rhetoric, whether it comes in the form of a teaching segment or just in life. By the way, I think this is a great way for you to pray for your pastors. I'm sure that as this letter was read aloud to the original readers on the island of Crete, to many of these believers, some of them would stop and think, you know, this is a good thing to pray for Titus and our elders. That they would teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. And uh, to, to us at Colonial, I would ask you to pray this way. Pray that your pastors don't go off into theories and tangents according to their own thinking and values. Pray that they avoid rabbit trails that are driven by cultural or political values more than Scripture. By the way, I think sometimes these asides come more and more frequently to pastors as they get older. And it's always my prayer that I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't decline that way. And if I do, I told Chris, you know, just pull me out of the pulpit. Just say it's over. You're done. Pray that doesn't happen here. Pray things like this. God, give us pastors who preach things that fit with sound doctrine. Give us pastors well-versed in Scripture not Fox News or CNN or any other political rag. Preaching that fits with Scripture and sound teaching. Titus's task is speech that accords with sound doctrine. But then Paul moves to instructions for older men in verse 2. So look in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. And uh, what begins here is something uh, that is its own kind of literary genre. It's a household code, which you find often in the Bible. In places like 1 Timothy and 1 Peter, for instance, over and over again, you will find these household codes where the author of Scripture will lay out expectations for older men and younger men and uh, older women and younger women. And in the first century context, also masters and slaves who are part of households. Um, so as these instructions begin, he starts with older men. Now, uh, when he says older men, I think he's describing men likely in their 40s or 50s or up. Okay, the, there's some reason I think that. I won't get into all of that. But they, but they did have shorter, shorter lifespans uh, during that time and, uh, and things of that nature, whatever I was saying. Okay. Uh, his, expect- his expectation here is that older men excel in four qualities. They're to be sober-minded, translated temperate or sober in other translations, which can mean free from intoxication to alcohol, but here it's likely broader than that. 
It speaks of wise moderation in all areas. And so older men, listen up. Older men should be wise in their decision-making, careful to honor God in what they say and do. They are to be sober-minded. They're also to be dignified, which is a word that means worthy of respect or honorable. And so Christ-like dignity should shine forth from the lives of elderly men who have come to know and love Jesus Christ. By this, Paul is intending things that are the opposite of being crass, dirty, or improperly casual. Which again flies in the face, perhaps, of some of our cultural expectations. They're to be dignified. Third, they're to be self-controlled, which is a word that means they're to have a mastery over themselves, curbing their own natural sinful desires. This word, by the way, self-control, is repeated all through the text. So if you're reading through the different lists, I think it's every people group, either directly or implied in this passage, are told to be self-controlled. But here elderly men are to master their own natural and sinful desires and grow in this uh, as they pursue Christ. And then finally, they're to be sound or healthy in three domains. And these three domains are very familiar if you know your Bible. It says, in faith and love and steadfastness. Here, steadfastness is always related to hope in the Bible. And I, so I think he's got the three cardinal virtues in mind that Paul normally talks about. Faith, hope, and love. These elderly men are to be sound or healthy in the three cardinal Christian virtues. Faith, hope, love. Paul expects older men, I believe, to grow in these areas as they, and here's a key for you older men, as we daily renew our mind in Scripture and grow through our ongoing cooperation with the Holy Spirit and sanctification. Now, sadly, many elderly men aren't growing this way in our culture or even in church, uh, and and thus they evidence little soberness, dignity, self-control, and soundness. But I just say this, men and women, blessed is the church that has such older men who can serve as models of wisdom, dignity, self-control, and spiritual health. And may God give us more men like this who are going to take these qualities seriously. Know the extreme importance of dying to self and renewing their mind day after day, year after year, as the Spirit changes them into the image of God's Son. Listen, if you're here today as a man and you're in retirement, I'd say that's a very good thing. Okay, Don't buy into the lie that you've done all all your hard work for God already. Okay, I'd encourage you to use this time to dig in. Give yourself to these things more and more so that your life would adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we've got more to say about men, but I'm going to do that next week when it comes up in the text again about younger men. But uh, in verses 3 and 4, Paul turns next to elderly women. And so I want to look there in your Bible. Verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And then the first part of verse 4. And and so train the young women. 
So here we translate to elderly, or we transition to elderly women. I think uh, what Paul is doing here is he understands that perhaps some of the normal pressures of raising young families is off older women. And so he's got specific commands to them and their state of life that he wants to address. They involve four things here. They must be reverent in behavior. The, uh, the original actually starts with uh, the word for in behavior. It starts in the arena of life or in their way of living. And then it just gives one word. Reverent, holy. So in their entire way of living, Paul says, that if we're going to talk about that, there's one word that I want to give them, and that is they should be holy. Sometimes this expression, by the way, is used of priestesses. And so in public and in private, older women are to live in a way that befits a holy person, one dedicated to the worship of God. He moves on and says that next they're not to be slanderers, and that's a very strong word if you're reading it originally. I don't do this often, but the word is uh, diabolus. The word for devil is diabolos. It's a word that in, in some context speaks of the devil. Older women are not to be devilish in their speech. More specifically, the sense of the word is they're not to accuse, and I think the ESV has got it here, they're not to be accusers, they're not to speak against other people maliciously. With all the pressures of a young family behind them, these women may have more idle time, and thus they must keep their tongue in check and avoid slandering others in their free time. Third, they must also avoid the heavy drinking that was a serious problem in Crete. text literally says they're not to be slaves to much wine. Now, it's interesting that in ancient time, in Greco-Roman cities, there was a serious problem with alcoholism. And Cretans were well known for their alcoholism. They boasted of drinking their alcohol and holding it well. So these elderly women must be different from many of the other women on the island. That is, they must not be enslaved to much wine. But then Paul closes with verse 4 with a one-word description. It takes several words in English to translate. And it's found in the little phrase, teach what is good. This compound little word takes the two words for good and teacher and puts them together. Older women must give themselves to teach younger women what is good. And I think as we get down into verses 4 and 5, we'll learn what the good is. Here I just want to emphasize this about older women. I want you to get this, uh, that Paul calls elderly women in the church to devote themselves to teaching and to training younger women. I mean, from who else are younger women supposed to learn how to properly function in the home? This is a call to elderly, godly women in the church. Now, I want to give just a pastoral word of application here that I think is appropriate at this point. Older people are vital to the health of homes and churches. It's a sad thing for me that sometimes to see young people dismiss older generations because they 
and fill in the blank because they struggle with technology. Okay. Don't even know how to use an iPhone. Uh, which, by the way, if you're a younger person, I know how to use an iPhone. So, no, actually, not well. My kids make fun of me all the time about that. But they're not disrespecting me. Sorry. They're not dismissing me either, I don't think. Sometimes young people dismiss older generations because they struggle with things like this or they struggle staying in touch with the latest fashion trends. But dismissing the elderly men and women is not biblical. Sure, it might be what our culture teaches or what our flesh tells us to do, not to honor, revere, respect the elderly, but that is not what God's word says. Instead, we must value the input and teaching of elderly people, especially if they know the word of God better than us. That's not always true. But especially if they know the word of God better than us and have learned from life lessons, uh, things that would be of a benefit and value to us. And so as a father, I quickly try to, and graciously try to shut down any criticism of elderly, godly people when I hear it. I don't want my children or any others in our home, including myself, thinking that. In this passage here, God reveals that older men must take it upon themselves to mentor young women, and it would be foolish for a younger woman to shun them. Later, he'll tell Titus himself to show himself an example of good works. Older men should be teaching younger men too. And so that's my first pastoral word to you. Be ready to learn from the elderly, especially if they know and follow Jesus Christ. To the older generation, I would say again, please don't buy into the lie that you've done your time or performed your ministry for Christ. And now you need a break. Retirement presents new opportunities to get involved in people's lives. I I am so pumped by the personal example of two men who've recently retired in our church and they're looking for ways they can disciple men. That's exciting. I'm also thrilled by some of the latest things our women have been doing and, um, you know, I would, I would never, ever identify any woman as an older or elderly woman. <laughs> Let's say where some mature women uh, are, more mature women are um, teaching things uh, to the younger women. This sort of ministry protects a church and it shapes our homes. Uh, But then uh, Paul turns his attention to how younger women should live in verses 4 and 5. And this is where we're going to close, okay? And I've got about 10 minutes left here today. Verse 4, And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Here Paul lists five qualities that demonstrate the priorities of young women. First, they're to be trained or taught to love their husbands and children. That whole phrase comes from basically from two words. Um, you've likely heard of the Greek word that sounds like our word Philadelphia. Okay, and of course we know Philadelphia, the English word means city of brotherly what? Good, you said it right, you didn't say shove, right? City of brotherly love. We know that's about love. 
Okay. Paul takes that word, phila, twice, and he combines it with a word for man and a word for children. They're to be trained how to love their husband and their children. Now, in this passage, Paul is not mandating that all young women must be married. That's not what he's doing. But in his culture, it was a pretty safe assumption to think that the outstanding majority of younger women would be married. There were some cultural factors going on that greatly limited singleness in young women. And so he's addressing the majority of younger women here. By the way, if you're a single woman, 1 Corinthians 7 very clearly explains that that's a high calling by God that enables you to focus entirely on your relationship with the Lord. As I'd encourage you to use it that way. But if these younger women are married, they must be taught to love their husband and children. It's a significant lesson they must be taught. They also must be taught to be self-controlled, which is the same word used of older men. They must gain a mastery over their own appetites and desires. Next, they are to be taught to be pure, which could be translated holy or chaste. Living in purity in their culture was a challenge, and in our world today, uh, that mission is not easy either. And so one of the things that elderly women should be able to teach youngerly women out of... Youngerly. (laughs) (laughs) Younger women uh, out of their life experience and from their day-by-day renewal of their mind, dying to self, growing in the spirit and sanctification, they should be able to teach younger women how to be pure. In our culture. Next, uh, you come to two words. So I think it's best to combine. Uh, some translations do this, others don't. It could be that Paul's speaking about being workers at home and being good, but it seems more likely that he intends for young women to be taught to be good workers in the home. Okay, now when we come to this phrase, uh, as moderns, we get nervous. Right? You start reading this in your Bible and your right eye starts twitching a little bit. Workers at good, workers at home. What does that mean? Is Paul demanding that women stay in the home? In the kitchen? Or supply closet? Is this some sort of ancient standard that our now more enlightened minds know is chauvinistic? Is this a text where it would be appropriate to lock God in a box and only allow him to tell us certain things to do? The rest will decide because we're our own authority. Well, just look at the expression very closely. I'll say a few things about it. Two things rise to the surface for me. First, this passage, this expression, does not forbid a woman from working outside the home. Instead, it presents... Her primary base of operation, the main focus of her attention. Okay, I'll repeat it for you just in case you want to later on confront me with it. This passage does not forbid a woman from working outside the home. Instead, it presents her primary base of operation, the main focus of her attention. This text does not say that women are only to be workers at home. But that they are to be, and the way I would translate it is the way the NRSV translates it, good managers of the household. 
good managers of the household. Look like how that translation deals with the word worker, good manager over the household. Although we live in an age where devotion to a husband and child rearing is disparaged, the word of God here emphasizes it for young women who are married. Now, second, might I also say that it's my prayer that this passage would actually encourage those women in our church who are trying to honor it. Many of our young mothers labor through countless hours beyond measure to bless their husbands and their children in numerous ways that we will never know of until glory. And it would be my prayer that this would be of an encouragement to them. And I think it would be appropriate, appropriate for us to take a few minutes to praise God for this as demonstrated in our church family and to pray that God would sustain young women as they minister to their families in this way. Again, I'll just give you a pastoral note here um, that I think the Lord has led me to here. And I think that this expression, good workers, good, uh, as I um, translate, good managers of the household, I think that expression should call husbands and wives in our assembly to take inventory of their home. Okay, and so I'm going to ask you a few questions I want you to think about in your home. Do the present expectations and schedules in your house allow the wife to do this properly? Do the present expectations and schedules in your home allow the wife to do this properly? Are you or others expecting too much of her outside of the home? Another question. Is your budget off-centered or overextended in such a way that you are making things impossible for her to do this? Along those lines, you could ask this question. What extravagances can or should you eliminate from your budget so that she can be freed up to fulfill this God-ordained priority? Should you cut the cord of your cable? Should you reduce technology spending and bills? Should you consider even a more inexpensive home? Or sell the Lamborghini or Tesla or whatever. I use Lamborghini because I'm not aware of anyone having them in the church. But if you do, I'm sorry. You might also consider, if that's a particular struggle for you, I just would encourage you, in the next Equip class... Uh, Les Litchfield and Ian Lawrence are going to teach a class on personal finances. So the question I'm there is, you know, are your financial priorities out of balance so that you're putting pressure upon a mother or a wife to do more than is humanly possible or sustainable? The final one here is submission to your own husband's. And the young women are to be submissive to their own man. A few important things here. First, the expression one's own that's found here makes it obvious that these young women do not need to feel a sense of obligation to be submitted to all men or other men. Okay, now there are some cases in which 
a younger woman needs to submit to an authority in the workplace or in the church, just like other men that are there do or other children that are there do. But one's own makes it quite clear that a woman must not, sub- must not feel the need to submit to other wives' husbands like she does her own. Also, I might point out, and this is a word for men here, I think that's important, that when Paul does speak of a wife submitting to her husband, he always addresses the idea to her. It's always addressed from God to her. He nowhere says that men should expect this of women, or worse yet, make demands of them. Or men, may this never, ever be true of us, that we would use Scripture like a club to demand something. So I love that this is addressed to women and that that goes, uh, in my mind, uh, right to the the thought of uh, of a gentle, complementarian sort of relationship in the home. Where husbands kindly, lovingly, and boldly lead and where women take it upon themselves to love and to submit to their husbands as a way to honor the Lord and follow God's expectations in the home. Now, after listing these priorities for young women in the churches of Crete, Paul gives a little phrase that explains why they should be willing to do that. He uncovers the desired result of their sweet love, care, work, and submission. They do this so that, as the end of verse 5 says, God's word may not be reviled. When they behave in such a way in the home, no one will be able to speak irreverently of the word that is coming from God. John Stott said it this way. He says, our lives can bring adornment or discredit to the gospel. And here they're to do this so people will only have good things to say about the transforming power of God's word. I think what he's pointing out here is that the testimony of the gospel is often affected by the lives of those who claim that they believe it. The testimony of the gospel is often impacted by the lives of those who claim that they believe it. And we've all seen this, right? You've seen this at work. Someone who claims to be a Christian yet is immoral, rude, and dishonest. So that unbelievers, co-workers at the workplace say, I want nothing to do with that. Paul says we should live in these ways so that there'll be no room for people to blaspheme the word that comes from God. As we close, uh, I think the scriptures here have given us, have begun to give us some clearly defined differences between masculine and feminine roles in the home and in the church that are ordained by God as part of his plan for this created order as a way to glorify him. I trust that my own spirit in this has been received as one who I I, I simply want to proclaim what scripture says. I do not want to do so in a way that would foster any sort of abuse in any way or another in a home. Yet the scriptures are clear here about the role of elderly men, elderly women, and young women. And next week, 
we'll dig into young men. So make sure they're all here uh, uh, to hear that sermon as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for uh, the opportunity to work through this scripture. Uh, Lord, thank you that your word is authoritative. That's our belief. It gives us very clear instruction, simple, basic Bible instruction on gender and roles and the home and the church. And so, Lord, help us to know it. Help us to be willing to live it. Even if our beliefs cut, cut sharply across our culture's values. Lord, it strikes me that these sort of basic Bible beliefs uh, will likely become more and more unpopular. Lord, give us grace to hold them. Give us grace to know how to proclaim them in love and kindness in a way that points people not to behavior and standards, but points people to the gospel. Lord, help our behavior to adorn the doctrine of Jesus, our Savior. I pray that you'd give us wisdom to know how to do that in our world today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.